listening to an encore presentation of Faith and Family. And joining me in studio today, Rachel Weir. She's a speech pathologist and a, a good friend as well. Rachel, thanks for coming over to spend some time with us here on Faith and Family. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation. I love to. I always enjoy sitting around chatting with you. And uh, I guess it's it's a chat today, but also a professional conversation uh, about your work. What got you interested in this this field of speech pathology? I went to college actually as an undecided major, and I, as I, you know, did my general studies, I went to an undecided majors fair, and there was a uh, woman there, a young woman, and she was in uh, the graduate program in speech language pathology um, at Eastern Illinois University, and she just had this passion that, I mean, I just was like, I got to be around this woman. <laughs> I want to know what she's doing, and she really spoke to the different, uh, obviously all the age ranges that uh, we work with, but also the different settings that, and that really appealed to me. Um, I wasn't really sure if I, you know, I have uh, both of my parents were um, in the education field and I I thought, well, you know, I I like that. I definitely like the schedule, but I'm not sure. Um, So I kind of like the flexibility of uh, the different arenas that a speech therapist could work. And so I did some research after uh, I I saw her speak. And I mean, she she pretty much sold it for me. So going to college, as many students do, trying to think, what do I want to do? I know what I, you know, I, I enjoy a lot of things. Uh, but what do I want to do? You meet this person that has just this great energy and passion for what she she does. She loves doing it. You learn more about the the career, and what did you find out? Was as you you learned more about speech pathology and and therapy, did you think, uh, man, this is something I could really embrace. This is something that I would. Th- this is a great way that I could serve others. Absolutely. Um, I, I it also just as I studied more about it, uh, I thought the the hospital aspect of it, the the swallowing, the dysphagia therapy was very intriguing to me. It also, um, I thought how... Um, You're using big words, <laughs> which is fine, but now we have to break those down That's because true. I don't know what all those words mean. <clears throat> Perhaps our listeners do. But um, <clears throat> so you go in, you study the, in, in this field. What is, I guess before we get much further, what is speech pathology and, and therapy and where does this all fit together what is this field well it's the study of not only uh, language speech sounds and uh, cognitive abilities and uh, diagnosing and treating all of those things as well as swallowing um, and stuttering disorders wow i'm sure i forgot so have you diagnosed me with anything in the, the not, the first not five yet minutes? okay <laughs> give me a few minutes here <laughs> so <clears throat> so that's really quite a, a a lot to study. And this was uh, a four-year program or, or longer? It is uh, to be a, a licensed speech therapist, you have to have a master's degree. Wow. So this is, what did you study then as an undergrad to prepare for the, the master's degree? As an undergraduate, you take courses uh, more uh, for more we took a phonetics course, so that is meaning the the sounds and kind of the patterns of the sounds in our in American speech, and also language. So how we learn and learn to talk from you know from as we're born, and also a little bit of um, more cognitive 
you know, uh, language difficulties that mm -hmm. uh, adults can acquire. But most of it was just kind of the foundation. We didn't get very deep into any of those things. Uh, and the and when we went to graduate school, that was more of the treating and the diagnosing of those disorders. That's that's a lot to take in, I'm sure. But uh, over time, as you you progress and learn, I, I, I gather. Did you have practicums or or field experience of some kind along the way, especially as an undergrad, learning? Is this something I really want to do? <laughs> yes, yes, we did. Uh, as, as a senior and your undergrad, you uh, we observed graduate students with their they, their clients, um, and then their, the final semester, we were able to get one client that we saw once a week in the therapy center. And then at in graduate pro, our graduate program, we did, uh, while we were at the school, we had two clients each semester. And then our last year of graduate school was all practicums. We did uh, 12 weeks in the school setting and then eight to 12 weeks in uh, with a, the adult population. And you were able to pick, you could do an acute care hospital or more of a rehab hospital or a nursing home program. So you can do a, 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 a clinical or a medical type setting, a hospital setting, uh, yes. or, or an education setting Correct. as well. And you've served in, in, in both of those areas yes, as well. Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. what, um, what is has been intriguing about those, those different... I, I'm sure the environments are different in both of those, serving in an education setting as well as a, a more of a clinical setting. What was it like uh, being in the education setting? What did you like about it? What did you learn along the way? Being in the education setting, uh, the f the best part I would say would be the, the schedule, would be the teacher schedule, obviously. Um, and that way, you know, you have a lot of students on your caseload and you get to know a lot of, of really neat kiddos. Um, but it, it can be a little bit overwhelming with the scheduling, uh, with 60 different kids on your caseload. And um, it was wonderful to work with lots of supportive teachers um, that... I kind of, I miss that being in home care right now, but um, learning, uh, getting into IEP uh, meetings and paperwork, uh, <laughs> that was, that was the difficult part. But the kids, I mean, they're just always so excited to see you um, because you're the fun person that takes them out of class and play games. <laughs> so, so they loved that part about it. Um, and then we're in a hospital setting. Um, you you only get to see your patients for a short while uh, in an acute care setting. Um, where, you know, a nursing home you can you can see patients a lot longer. But uh, the I I more uh, flock to that because I, I like the medical side of it, and I, I just think you you see so much more interesting stuff mm -hmm. in the school. Um, you do a lot of the same stuff uh, repetitively, and so uh, every once in a while, and with the adult. Pro, uh, adult population, you get thrown a curveball, and I kind of <laughs> like that. Well, let, let's take a, a look at some of the the, the um, communication issues that a child might face that would bring them to uh, a, a, you know a class like yours or a therapy sure. uh, in a school setting. In a school setting, um, there can be several different ways that um, you, a teacher is usually the referral source for a, for speech therapy. So they would either notice that they're not pronouncing a certain sound right. So a lot of people, you know, associate that with like a lisp on an S or a R is a very common sound <laughs> that is not pronounced correctly. Um, and then also some children, uh, 
their language isn't developing. You know, they're having trouble with pronouns um, or understanding verb tenses, things like that. Um, and so we would start with an assessment and depending on how severe the, the issue is and how it is impacting their education, then when we, we would pick them up on our caseload. Uh, we also get referral sources from special education. So those typically are more of the language population. Um, so, and also children on autism spectrum. So those social language disorders where they're not um, able to pick up on social cues and understanding that those social mm-hmm. language that c- seems natural for most of us. So there are really a, a broad spectrum of things that you address uh, in, in that therapy as well. Anything from something that might be like more of a, a physical in nature mm-hmm. um, to creating a sound to how we actually use language and and addressing, you know, whether it's a receptive or an expressive Correct. type mm-hmm. of uh, issue. Absolutely. Wow. That's just like a huge broad <laughs> spectrum. How do you... It, Jack yeah, of all trades, right. master of none. <laughs> that's, that's a lot to, to take in. Uh, and for I'm sure for a child, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, well, and, and you, as a parent as well, you're probably experiencing this now with a child who's, who's starting to develop language skills and Absolutely. speech skills as well. That we, was my, the first setting I worked in was actually the early intervention in Illinois. And so that's the birth to three program. And so we get referrals from doctors or parents that are concerned about the child's language development. And again, you know, uh, starting at one year, uh, that's around the milestone where we look Mm -hmm. for the first word. And so uh, based on that assessment at that point, we can go into the home and provide the same therapy services that uh, someone would get in a school setting. I was fascinated as a parent, before actually becoming a parent, learning that language development and speech development are not necessarily one and the same thing. Correct. That that we start to develop language skills before we have the motor skills to speak. Absolutely. I didn't realize that. It's wild. Yeah. (laughs) And, And so, you know, learning other ways to communicate before we even start speaking, you know, to communicate with a baby and what are the ways that they're trying to express themselves because they, they, they don't necessarily have all those motor skills to speak. Absolutely. And uh, on a lot of those the standardized assessments before 18, 15 months, gesture is counted a lot for expressive mm-hmm. language. Yeah, and 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 let me tell you, with a newborn, there are lots of <laughs> lots of gestures, and as a parent, you're trying to interpret those and and, and figure out what does that mean. What is it, especially as a first time parent, trying to figure out what does that what does that mean? Well, uh, ha- being a parent now, has that um, changed how you look at some of these things? I, I know having all this wealth of knowledge uh, from your education mm-hmm. has that changed. New, are are you always trying to uh, try these things out on your your, your little one? <laughs> Absolutely. It's also make me made me think back like, oh, I, I just I th- probably should have been a little more patient with so-and-so. <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. Being a parent does teach you patience as well, doesn't it? So you, you've served in, in a variety of settings. So you, you worked in an early intervention setting. Correct. And then did you work with, with then older students in a school as well? Yes. Yes. And now working with older adults in, in a hospital set or home I'm in home, home care, care right now. now. Yes. Mm-hmm. So so with those, those early children, those, those early years, early intervention, what are some of the things that uh, that, you know, a young child might encounter? Or what are some signs that a parent might that a parent might look for uh, to 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 see, you know, 
are, are we developing the, the speech and language skills that, that we should at this stage? Uh, what should I talk to my pediatrician about? Do we need a referral to uh, in, for speech pathology? Very good. Uh, so definitely if you, the, the child has a history of lots of uh, ear infections, um, you know, that's obviously going to have an impact on what they're receptive, what they understand, and their expressive language. Um, also, like I said before, that that approximation. So when I I say that, you know, they don't have to say the word perfectly, but making a gesture with a paired with a sound for that first word around one year, um, and then in about eighteen months, having a vocabulary of anywhere between uh, fifteen to twenty words, identifying two body parts on themselves, um, imitating. Uh, Mm-hmm. What what they see the adults do in the home, um, that recept- reciprocal play, uh, that's a huge indicator of what they're understanding about what's going on around them. Um, those would be the big things really early on. Uh, we always say at two years, they should be putting two words together. So um, any any combination of two words, mm-hmm. and then like by daddy milk, yeah, daddy milk, perfect. <laughs> now it's three words, daddy milk, please. <laughs> daddy milk now. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that too. <laughs> We've worked on that one. Yes, <laughs> um, and up until about three years old, there are a multitude of speech sound errors. Not everything has to be perfect. Um, by about three, however. A child should be, you know, 80 to 90% intelligible. So you should be understanding most of what they're saying. So that's, uh, at that cutoff, uh, a lot of those simplification processes that children use. So they'll either, you know, leave off the N sound of a word Mm -hmm. or they'll say dink for drink because that DR there on the front is... R's are hard. Those R's are hard um, or top for stop. Those, those are some simplification processes that are normal up until about three years old. What about using, this, is, this has been a fun one in our home lately, in uh, strawberries. Those R's are hard. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a really hard word to well, you say. You know what our son calls them? Straw babies. Oh. And it's so adorable. <laughs> don't like, ever stop right that, that's no. that's what my wife said please don't ever stop calling them straw babies that's so cute <laughs> but you know at, at some point in time yes he's going to have to learn how to say strawberries absolutely and r is definitely the last sound that comes in so if it's not mastered by seven or eight that's when the i concern. see so and there there's a broad range of of ages where sounds should be mastered and so the beginning sounds are usually those M's and P's and B's because they're they're both made with your lips together. Mm-hmm. They're very visual mm-hmm. for babies and they're very easy to make. And then, you know, going R is like is the very last one. It's all with the tongue inside the mouth. It's hard to teach. It's, yeah. Because you can't see. <laughs> you can't see it. It's, right. It's it's hard. It's well, a hard one. L is probably right up there too. L is yes, L and R are the last two. That's correct. The uh, way Americans <laughs> speak and the, the English language, the way that Americans speak it, I can't imagine trying to learn it from coming from another culture. Absolutely not. No, as a second language. It's it's crazy. We have <laughs> rules. The English language has rules that no other language in the world has. Well, especially when you Americanize it, then there are even more rules. <laughs> Absolutely. For example, when you all, and then the, the plural of you all, all y'all. <laughs> They didn't teach you that in speech pathology. I didn't learn about that one. Yeah, see, I have to (laughs) 
go to my school of speech pathology. <laughs> so young children, there, there are certainly some markers to look for in, the, in the getting into the elementary and, and middle school. What about, um, you know, during those, those middle school and high school years, um, there might be some some development issues or um, for, you know, for students as well as for adults, uh, an injury or something like mm-hmm. that that may, that, that may cause a, a change in, in communication. Absolutely. Uh, well, speaking of injury, obviously a traumatic brain injury would be a huge uh, impact on communication. But um, at, in school age years, if it's not a speech sound that we're working on, it's usually something tied in with reading or uh, higher level language like synonyms and antonyms and um, figurative language, understanding those kinds of things. Uh, Writing is another thing we work on with a lot of older children. So uh, once they they understand those different verb tenses, it's a whole nother process to put it down on paper. Absolutely. So. Wow. So... Usually by this point in time, if it's a, if there's a development issue, it's probably already been identified by, by middle school, high school. Yes. Yeah. And, and you would see it definitely, uh, you know, math and, and science might be okay, but you know, reading, reading and writing, uh, their literature scores might not be as, as good as the other two. Cause you know, there's not a whole lot of language with, with numbers. So <laughs> what about as, as adults, um, you know, in, you know, in our, our young adult life to, you know, midlife, we'll, we'll get to older adults here and some of the, the issues they might face as well. I guess in, in those, in that stage of, of life and, and human growth and development, this communication issues are probably primarily related to either illness or, um, or, or injury, right? Absolutely. Uh, or, you know, there are definitely some congenital mm-hmm. things that, you, you know, um, people, we aren't able to, you know, uh, help them to the point where everything is 100% where we would want it to be. But uh, typically, it's we don't see a whole lot of, of people in that population unless something, you know, uh, catastrophic has happened, like a brain injury or something. Early acquired MS or Parkinson's, something. But usually it's not to the point yet where mm-hmm. they really need our services yet. I couldn't imagine what that would be like, though, that, you know, that transition in life, that that change in life, you know, having, um, you know, regular communication abilities, hearing, uh, speaking, seeing all those things that that uh, that we use in communication and then, uh, you know, a traumatic brain injury or or something else, an illness or something that causes a change in in, uh, those senses. Um, and then trying to, to overcome those those challenges and barriers. Have you ever worked with clients that have faced something like that? Absolutely. Uh, I had a, a patient recently. He was he had just turned thirty, actually, and he had he had uh, some, a diabetic coma situation and ended up with some encephalopathy. And you know, he just uh, his speech was you know real slow and labored. And so we we worked with him. Uh, the important thing with patients with that is getting them. In, into a place like a rehab hospital or somewhere where they can get intensive therapy, all disciplines, PT, OT, and speech, uh, you know, twi- two or three times a, we- a day uh, because the, the, mo- the most crucial time is those first couple weeks mm-hmm. after, after those events. And I would imagine that that takes 
<clears throat> motivation as well for for the patient. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I can't imagine how frustrating that must be. Um, to, to I know the the few times that I've had laryngitis, and uh, well, then I just go off by myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's hard, you know, when you you have responsibilities, whether it's as a parent or in your work, uh, and and you lose just temporarily lose that communication ability. Now I have the advantage of knowing American Sign Language, but it also helps when the people around you know American mm-hmm. Sign Language as well. Otherwise, it's kind of <laughs> it's definitely to your right. advantage. <laughs> uh, but uh, I can't imagine how how challenging and frustrating that must be to experience a change in your communication abilities and then have to face, you know, relearning a, a skill or relearning something like that. How do you face, you know, how, how do you help a, a client with that? I know it's got to be challenging you and frustrating. Always looking to the positive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even if it's the smallest progress, you know, any, any kind of light that you can give them, um, they got, they have to stay motivated because once they lose that motivation, unfortunately, the high incidence of depression with, with that mm-hmm. population too. So, um, when, once you, we get going, you know, just, just enc- keep encouraging them. Mm-hmm. Family support is huge. You know, working with them around the clock too. It's not only you know what the therapists are able to do with them in our short time with them, but what family and other caregivers can do with them when we're not there. Sure, that's a, a big extension of of what's happening in the therapy. That's kind of like the homework. Absolutely, the homework. <clears throat> And that's, uh, I'm sure, important as well. I appreciate that you pointed out that even just the the little glimpse of, uh, you know, little progress markers that you can identify and celebrate can provide that motivation to keep going, keep trying. You've made some progress. Mm-hmm. Let's keep working on this. You're, you're making some progress rather than regressing. <laughs> Absolutely. And the, my patients that focus on the progress are the ones that are successful, the ones that, that want to concentrate on that negative. It, it it is usually not a, a pleasant or successful experience. Yeah, I just, I just can't get it. I just can't mm-hmm. get it. It makes it harder even more to get it. I want to talk uh, about what happens as in those older years of life and some of the, the issues we might face as well. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back from that break, we'll take a look at um, how th- your profession in, in speech pathology and therapy might be helpful in those older years in life. We're talking with Rachel Weir, a speech pathologist here on Faith and Family. More conversation on the way. You're listening to Worldwide KFUO. The messenger of good news. Listener supported worldwide KFUO. You're listening to an encore presentation of Faith and Family. (music) 
Welcome back to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. We are discussing uh, overcoming uh, communication disorders with Rachel Weir. She's a speech pathologist and has worked in a variety of settings with young children, those those early years uh, when they're, they're just starting to develop those skills, as well as children in, in uh, school setting and, and now um, adults and, and older adults. Before we went to break, uh, we had just talked about some of the things that, that adults might face um, based on, you know, as a result of an injury or an illness or or even some congenital issues as well. What about when we get into those older years in life, what are some uh, things that might face us maybe because of, of health or, or, or other reasons that might affect our communication, especially when it comes to speech? What are some of those things that we might encounter? I, I get a lot of uh, strokes. That would, I would say that's probably 75% of my caseload right now. Uh, also, head and neck cancer. Uh, lots of former smokers that have had some kind of, of surgery to either remove part or all of their tongue or jaw or larynx. Um, so they're learning a new normal. Um, some of them still ha- have to have a trach, um, so a hole in their neck to breathe. And um, others, we, you know, we're, we're doing com- compensatory strategies, you know, little tips and tricks uh, to, to just to make them more understandable mm-hmm. to, to unfamiliar listeners. Um, dementia is another uh, disease that I see quite frequently. Um, as the disease progresses, it affects the patient's ability to communicate, but it also affects their swallowing. Uh, Parkinson's and other kind of uh, neurological diseases, um, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, progressive supranuclear palsy, things of that nature. Did you have to take like a year of Latin to to be able to to pronounce all of these words? I'm sure studying the linguistics uh, along the way has helped. No Latin though, no. (laughs) So some that are more physical in nature, some that are more um, uh, neurological in nature, it mm-hmm. sounds like. Yes. And uh, wow, that, that trying to, to figure out how to, how to compensate for, for some of those. Let's, let's talk about stroke and some of the challenges as one might face in stroke um, and how you would help with that. Sure. Uh, the communication uh, deficits in someone with a stroke Art can be as different as day and night. So it could just be someone who, you know, is having some, a little bit of stuttering. Uh, there is a, a disorder called aphasia where mm-hmm. the uh, person is having difficulty uh, getting the words out. So I always kind of say it's like the words on the tip of their tongue, but they, they know what they want to say. They just can't get it out. It happens here all the time. <laughs> happens to me every day. I've had a few moments of that already. <laughs> um, and so that can either be what how they speak or how, what they understand as well. Uh, they could also have some cognitive deficits as a result of that stroke. So sometimes uh, they can be very impulsive, not really aware of, okay, the whole left side of my body is affected. So I shouldn't just stand up and turn to my left because I'm going to fall over. Um, and memory, uh, reasoning, so that's a big one that we work with right now in the home. Um, so they they can be safe at home if they're going to be by themselves. Um, and also, if the stroke affects the the muscles in the throat, then it uh, will uh, affect their swallowing as well. So. 
it, it seems to me, just as you were sharing this, that you probably work in a team setting. That, that you work with physical therapists, occupational therapists, uh, assistants, you know, PTAs, mm-hmm. OTAs. How important is it to to understand their profession and how you all, you know, how this all works together? Oh, it's it has to be totally collaborative. Uh, you, you know, we, we're we're talking all the time about uh, the patient and. Uh, where we want them to go, um, you know, as far as goals, what our ultimate goal for the patient is, you know, if, are we going to discharge them so they're at home, but, you know, or, or do we need to look at maybe some assisted living facility or uh, having a hired caregiver stay with them or family, things like that. That, I, I would imagine, takes a lot of communication just in itself, whether you're Absolutely. communicating electronically via <laughs> email and, and, and things like that, or, or whether you're there at the, the same time, you know, in a, in a clinical setting. Absolutely. It's team all the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it helps that uh, your, your partner in life, too, your husband, yes. happens, he's an OTA, too, isn't he? He's a, a physical therapy assistant. Oh, PTA. Yes. So. Uh, so do, when you go home, do you all talk about this? Yeah, this we talk stuff? shop. Uh-huh. <laughs> usually, unfortunately, it's usually related to documentation and insurance. But <laughs> the challenges that you face in that. Absolutely. That's a whole nother talk for another day. <laughs> we'll spare the audience of the, all the <laughs> documentation. Boring, right? yes. <laughs> That's okay. We have documentation like that, too, in radio. It's <laughs> probably not. It doesn't uh, not for insurance, but all those other legal documents we have to do. Well, so working in a team setting is, is certainly important. If you're considering a, you know, a, a career in speech pathology, you have to like to work with others. You have to like to work <laughs> with others. That's right. Whether it's your client or your, your the other you're therapists. The or their family. Yeah. Their family. Absolutely. Other, uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, re- coping with the stroke and the challenges one might face with that. You mentioned cancer and some of the, um, the results of that, maybe having surgery uh, that that has removed a, a muscle or bone or tissue or something mm-hmm. that that affects uh, speech and communication. Wow, how do you how do you help with that? I would say this is probably one of the most difficult populations to work with because these patients were completely normal up until the point that you know they they found this cancer diagnosis. And, you know, they expect they have this life-saving surgery, you know, mm-hmm. or they think they are hoping it's going to be life-saving. And then, you know, they when they get out of surgery, they, they as themselves look, they feel different. They look different a lot of the time. Um, sometimes they have a feeding tube and, you know, they're breathing out of this hole in their neck. And it's a lot of counseling as well as uh, getting their their speech in, back to where they want it to be. Um, but then again, if they, they're planning on doing any kind of radiation treatment, that again is going to affect the, the muscles and the tissues in that area. So they go through a lot of hills and valleys. Hmm. And it, it's more um, uh, counseling about what's to come. And again, staying positive, uh, doing your exercises, and, uh, and just getting to that new normal. Um, because a lot of the times it's not going to be what it was before. Sure. Lots of things have changed. Maybe, it, you know, outwardly, it may appear to be just one thing that, that looks different. But, yeah, how your body responds to all those things mm-hmm. and, and how you feel about those makes a difference in how you go about adapting to it. Absolutely. Attitude is everything. Right, Dad? <laughs> 
What about, uh, you mentioned dementia earlier as well. Um, what are some of the communication issues that, or, or speech issues that might come up when, when facing dementia? Uh, usually it begins uh, as kind of a mild aphasia, so that word finding again. Uh, and as it progresses, uh, they usually it's it ends up being, uh, there's some kind of, they're speaking in, in things that you don't really understand. They're, they're saying a lot of words without saying mm-hmm. something. So that thing over there is doing this. Well, you're, you're saying words, but nobody knows what you're talking about. It has very little to do very with... Very little meaning what? or, mm-hmm. yes. Um, and they're not, they don't understand as well uh, what you're, you're talking about. Um, and, you know, that, uh, that short-term memory, being able to comprehend and remember what their conversation partner is, is talking about that also begins to, to subside. So how do you help with that? Is there anything you can do to help there, with that? There's no cure, but there are things that we, we can do to, you know, help caregivers, mm-hmm. uh, strategies, um, and therapy, you know, kind of staves off the, the decline a little bit. Uh, so we instruct caregivers on, uh, things that they can do to help, uh, things like, you know, listening to music, looking at old photo albums, um, doing hobbies, playing card mm-hmm. games, things that uh, acquire a little bit of memory and attention. I just talked with our friends from Lutheran Senior Services on Monday about their music and memory program at Look League Groves here in the St. Louis area. And I was just amazed at uh, how they shared the some uh, the vast improvement for some of the residents who uh, just through listening to you know a playlist for uh, on an iPod for mm-hmm. you know 25 minutes half an hour how that was very calming and then enabled them to interact and engage more absolutely music is is wonderful for for that yeah. population do you ever have you ever worked with a music therapist I have in your not settings? in not in home care uh, when I was in the school setting we used a music therapist a little bit and I mean obviously the kids loved yeah. <laughs> loved it um, but music it's it's very you know linguistically it's simple and mm-hmm. um, for you know it's when we do nursery rhymes and things those are things that are embedded in our long-term memory so they're usually easy mm-hmm. to access for for young younger kids and older adults that, that was what I was going to ask next are there things that you uh, you use with young children that you also use with with adults and older adults? Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's just how you present it. Sure, <laughs> this nursery rhymes and things like that. What, give, can you give me an example of something you would have done? You know, with the you know with the the young school children that that you still use in your your home oh, care. Oh sure. Well, on top of nursery rhymes and singing, uh, you know, identifying pictures. So giving uh, the the child or the adult, you know, a field of two or four pictures and having them, you know, where point to the fish, point to the shoe. Do you ever have a client look at you and say, are you serious? No. (laughs) (laughs) Find the fish. Usually a caregiver is, you know, thinking, oh, that's way too simple for them. But when they see them struggling, you know, that that's kind of when you can see it, it hits home. I see. Yeah. And then you build from there. You build from there. That's right. That's right. And he says, that's a bluegill. (laughs) Which one? (laughs) So there are, it it sounds like a myriad of challenges that we can face when it comes to 
communication, especially in those those latter years. We talked about dementia. You mentioned ALS and Parkinson. I would imagine some similar issues, similar challenges that, that you face in dementia as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a Parkinson's uh, type of dementia as well, um, but both of those diseases are progressive as well, like dementia. And so uh, those two diseases are really about, you know, future planning, um, like getting communication boards and communication mm-hmm. devices set up, uh, things like that. So if one is diagnosed with, uh, with ALS or Parkinson and, and you're concerned about future communication, you can look into a device, you know, f- work with a, a therapist to, to find out if there's technology to help with communicating in the future that wouldn't require speech, but could use something like recorded speech. Absolutely, absolutely. And then as as your physical abilities also decline then you know we they can use eye gaze and blinking mm-hmm. things like that lots of cool stuff out there this is amazing how technology has changed over you know just even just the last decade have you seen that in your in your absolutely, career absolutely especially in the area of communication devices and and now you know we we have apps that you know for mm-hmm. ipads that we can use for aphasia therapy or you know across Across the whole spectrum of, of our patients, really. I mean, who doesn't carry a, a phone with them? <laughs> Absolutely. I use, this Even if you don't have day. one, somebody around you surely has one mm-hmm. <clears throat> that can be used for uh, just overcoming a, That's a simple right. communication barrier. I remember working in higher education and uh, one one of my colleagues pointed out that many computers, you can actually plug two keyboards into a computer to communicate did you know that? I did not. Like just a, a typical, you know, desktop computer, you can plug in two keyboards so that you can each, instead of sliding a keyboard back and forth to, to type to one another, you can share the screen, but have two keyboards and both of you can then type on the screen what it is you're oh. trying to communicate. Who would That's have amazing. thought no. how simple, you know, something we take for granted every day, a keyboard that we use on our computer, but yeah, just add another keyboard and mm-hmm. it gives a, another person a chance to, to communicate via typing. It's almost like texting, but you're sharing a screen. <laughs> Texting, you know, people use that to communicate that's as well. That's right, and some some of my patients, that's their goal that mm-hmm. they want to work toward. I want to be able to text on my phone again. Well, <laughs> sounds well. Let's do it. That's a noble goal, exactly. right? So they can communicate. I bet with grandkids. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If you want to talk to grandkids, texting. Any stories from from the field? You know, from your work in the field that have just really made you say, "This is what uh, my profession is about. This is why I love what I do." Absolutely. Um, a recent one, I had a 94-year-old man, and uh, when I met him, he had been discharged home from the hospital in rehab, and uh, he had fallen on his back patio and broken every bone in his face. Hmm. Poor guy. And so he was not able to eat, and he had a feeding tube, um, and he had many surgeries. Uh, so, you know, that that area was inflamed, uh, and um, so he was starting... Went with me, we were going to progress to getting rid of the feeding tube and eating by mouth. So uh, over five weeks, we did our swallow rehabilitation exercises. And when I discharged him, he was eating a cookie and ice cream and his feeding <laughs> tube was getting removed by his doctor the next week. So I bet that I, was a glorious day. It was. It was, it was awesome. And I mean, so... 94, you know, some people wow, might yeah. have written him off, you know, too old. There's no rehabilitation potential there. But, I mean, mm-hmm. he did amazing. Um, and then, you know, kiddos that when you first meet them who, are, you know, they're ang- they can 
be angry because they have so much they want to say, mm-hmm. but they're not able to get it out. And working with them over months, you know, and this is more in the early intervention side, months and with with mom and dad and finally getting them able to say, you know, two or three words and, you know, mom and dad just lighting up yeah. is amazing. I bet. It's the best feeling in the world. Well, Rachel, we are all out of time, but I have certainly learned a lot. I hope our listeners have as well. Thank you so much for being my it guest today. It was a today. pleasure. Rachel, we're a speech pathologist. Uh, come back anytime. Love to, to talk more, and uh, maybe you can help me with some of my speech issues as well. Thanks for being my guest. Thank you. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.